Philippians, that's right. Okay, we are in Philippi, so I'll just put that up every week, and, and that's where Philippi was in, in antiquity, uh, or still would be. Um, this week, let's see, we're doing verses 9 through 11, Knowledge That Results in Love is the title of our sermon. Let me just open by reading and then prayer. The Apostle Paul writes, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Heavenly Father, God, we we ask uh, uh, as, as I preach and as they listen and as we respond to your word, Lord, that you would get the glory from that, that we I would praise the Lord of these deep sorrows that we call to, Lord, as, as we are going to get into Philippians and see that the Christian life, yes, we have been appointed to believe, but we have also been appointed to suffer, Lord. But you are a God who cares your loving kindness, Lord. Never, uh, you never remove it from us. Lord, we pray for mercy and grace in this sermon today, Lord, so that we may truly you would produce through us knowledge and wisdom and discernment, Lord, of a, of the, that results in love, loving you and loving one another. God, help us understand your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we covered the first eight verses of chapter 1. Paul began, as usual, with a personal greeting and then proceeded to remind the Philippians that he continually intercedes for them in prayer. And if you recall, when he tells them that, he also says that he has a deep sense of joy when he prays for them. And, and that deep sense of joy, which was kind of the, well, one of the points of the sermon, that joy and that relationship that they had was founded on their partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was at the foundation of their relationship. We looked at Acts 16 and saw where their relationship started. This week, we're going to explore just verses 9 through 11, which is actually what Paul prays for them. So as he told them in last week's verses, I pray for you and I pray with joy, verses 9 and 11 are the actual prayers that he prays. He begins in verse 9. And, and with this prayer, I pray this, that you would grow in knowledge that would result in love. And you would, your love would grow in knowledge. We see that just gaining knowledge, how to love, it's, it's just not, not the end goal. The ultimate goal of his prayers is actually found in verse 11, that their love would result in praise and give glory to God. And that is our ultimate goal, too. That's the goal of this sermon. That's the goal of our Christian life, that our lives would bring glory to God. And Paul's going to say, and we'll see in the Scripture, in order to bring glory to God, we are going to need to know how to love the Lord our God and how to love our neighbor as ourself. And one thing can be said about passages like this, they're very easy and helpful for application. Because not only do they tell us what we should be praying for, Paul prays this, well, pray that for one another. But they also tell us how we should be living out our Christian faith. 
What I mean by if, if Paul says, I pray that you would grow in knowledge, then our application is grow in knowledge. If Paul says, I pray that you would have the fruit of righteousness and glorify God, then our application is to produce the fruit of righteousness and glorify God. The application is very easy in passages like this. Anyway, you get, you get the point. First point, who wrote the book of love? I wanted to write that without singing it in my head and I just couldn't do it. I almost titled the sermon that, but then I was just like, everyone's just going to start singing that for the initial like five minutes and it's just not, not a good idea. But Paul says in verse nine, let's look at verse nine. He says, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. When I was in, when I was in seminary, one of my friends, uh, he told me that he was, he was preaching for his preaching class, and, and the sermon that he was going to preach was on the topic of love. And then he told me he was going to start the sermon by singing, All You Need Is Love. And then he started to sing to me, All You Need Is Love. And I promised myself I was never going to do that in any sermon, and I'm not going to do that in any sermon. I kind of did. But as I prepared this sermon, fast forward about eight years later from when that happened, all I could think about when I contemplated this, you know, this, this, this passage is, is that stupid song. That's all I could think about. And I'm just singing it in my head. And so I was like, well, maybe the lyrics are useful for the sermon. So I pulled up the lyrics and I'm just like, I, I don't even really know what that means. I, what, what, you know, what, what does it mean? All you need is love. And the lyrics that go with it are, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. All you need is love. I don't know. Maybe it's, hey, you're not special, but all you need is for me to love you. There's, there's, a, there's a good wedding card. Hey, you're not, don't. Oh, man, she is going to tear me up for this one. You get the point. I, I just didn't know what it means. So I'm contemplating, what, to, what does it mean? What does it mean to love? I mean, I can't imagine how, how many preachers have, have even used that song or song lyrics in a sermon. All you need is love. I recognize that, that love, all you need is love, all, all we need is love is, is a very common ideology among our culture. We just need to love one another, right? That sounds good. Yet, I'm not sure you could find a word that is more misunderstood than love. I would argue society and at times even the Christian church or the church. We either don't know or just forget what that word means. And I think most people agree we all just need to love each other, right? What, what love means to one individual can mean something completely different to another. I think we see that in all ideologies of what love is throughout our society. And in case you haven't noticed, what the secular, what the worldly culture classifies as love, many times is opposed to what God defines as love. But as the church of Christ, we must acquire a proper understanding of what love actually is. 
And we must do that in order so that we can fulfill the royal command given us to love. In order to do that, we're going to have to be able to discern what is loving and what isn't. We need a standard, right, to help us discern what is true love and what is not. We need a standard that we can live by. We need a standard that we can say, this is what God says is love and this is what He says isn't. We need some sort of instructions, right, to say, this is love and this is not. The necessity for that standard, I think, is it's obvious. I mean, if you just think about the passage, how can Paul tell the Philippians to grow in their knowledge of love, to grow in knowledge, if there's no standard they're supposed to look at? If they don't have a playbook to look at and say, this is love, how are they going to grow in knowledge of how to love? We've got a couple coaches, or at least previous coaches in here. If you think about a coach for a minute, and what if he didn't give his players a playbook? Right? To run plays from. Could you imagine him calling the play to his players? Run the Omaha, Nebraska, or the Omaha reverse, or clearly I didn't play football when I was in high school. But the team, without knowing the playbook or ever been given a playbook, all they would do in the huddle is just stare at each other and say, I have no idea how to do what coach told us to do. How in the world were they going to run a play they had never been taught? We would, just, we would be just as baffled as Christians if we didn't have a playbook teaching us how to love. But we do, right? But we do. In fact, we have the exact same playbook the Philippians had. It's the Word of God, right? It's the Word of God. And it's better than any secular ideology man has to offer Mainly because what we have is divinely inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, right? That all scriptures breathed out by God. So that's already one up on any ideology man has ever created. And the Word of God also says, here's, here's the standard. What's the standard of love? 1 John says, God is love. You see, the, and the word asserts that because God is love, He is the standard for love. God isn't just loving, right? God is love. That's what His nature is. That's His essence. God's essence is love. It's completely different than ours because unlike our love, His love is perfect. He has no need to gain knowledge in order to, to love or to grow in his potential to, be, uh, uh, to love greater. It's complete. It's perfect. His love is infinite. It's boundless. And yet it never changes. It, nor does it ever fail. His love cannot be persuaded and it cannot be manipulated. His love will never suffer loss. That's, he is our standard. He is our understanding of love. 
And he's given us divine revelation, the scriptures, the Bible, i.e. the word of God, into how we're to love one another. So who wrote the book of love? Well, the prophets and apostles through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's a long introduction just to say the Bible is our standard for love, right? The word of God. But loved ones, if we get that wrong, we will fail to live out the entire law of Christ, which is love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we need a knowledge that results in love. Paul says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior. So we have a starting point. Gain knowledge from God's Word. Our standard is God's Word. We've got to read it in order to know how. But gaining knowledge is not the end goal in itself, right? Paul says we need to gain knowledge and discernment. Believe it, what does Paul say? The Paul says the Christian judges. We judge between what is right and what is wrong. We are supposed to do it. We're just supposed to do it fair and balanced. Sorry, that sounded like a Fox News thing. I mean, we're supposed to do it with, with equal measure, balanced scales. We do judge, and he said that you're supposed to judge what is good, what is evil, what is sin, what is not. You have to know and be able to discern what is superior or what is excellent, verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are superior. It's not a free-for-all where we all just do what we want and cover it with the grace of God. No, Paul says, the Word of God says that we must learn what is right and what is wrong. And there is a difference between. And when we look at the wisdom of God's Word, it teaches us that we can possess all the knowledge we want. But if we don't apply that knowledge properly, that knowledge is completely worthless. In other words, just, just possessing knowledge means nothing if you don't apply it properly we need a knowledge that results in love over the last three years it feels like all we've just witnessed is a knowledge that resulted in anything but love in this country right maybe in this world in fact instead of of knowledge resulting in love it's it, it seems that that Knowledge has just resulted in, in arrogance and disrespect and offensiveness. And I'm not, at this point, I'm not even referring to society. I'm referring to the church across America. I'm, I'm referring to us, how we've treated one another. The church has allowed itself to be ripped apart by division. Why? Because we, th we who think we know it all have completely lacked charity toward one another. Paul addresses this, this issue of pride in the Corinthian church. First Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You see, love isn't selfish, right? It seeks the good of others. 
Love uses knowledge to help people. This is what Paul said. Love uses knowledge to help people, not to hurt them. And, and in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul uses the, the brother with a weaker conscience as an example how to love someone and not tear them down. Or how to use your knowledge to love someone and not tear them down. He says to the mature Christian, or writes to the mature Christian, sure you're right. right? He uses meat and, and temples and idols as, as sacrifice. He uses that and says, sure you're right. You can eat the meat. But you don't have to be a jerk to the one who still has trouble doing it. right? Because while your theological position may be correct, how you treat another person who hasn't arrived to that conclusion yet, says more about your Christian maturity than your knowledge does. Therefore, don't seek to win an argument. Seek to win a brother. We stand, by, we stand for truth. We stand by truth. We stand by God's word. But we're not supposed to be quarrelsome about it. We're supposed to be winsome. Now, I know at times we, we all fit into this next category, me included, but, but have you ever truly met a know-it-all? <laughs> if you're laughing, you might be them. Sorry, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. They're awful. We're, when we do it, we're awful. And they, it, know-it-alls have to be some of the most off-putting people on the face of this planet. And if you did laugh, you, you know the type. You've met the type, right? It's, it's the person who, who seems like they just wait for someone to make a comment so they can jump in with. Actually, they're quarrelsome. They, they always have to be right to, to any extent. And if they can't convince you of their position being correct, then their next step is belittling you. It's making you feel less than them and taking away your dignity. They go for the personal attack if they can't convince you their position is true. And I mean, when that point happens in a conversation, you, you, you just think to yourself, if that's the end product of what I'm supposed to become, I don't want anything to do with that. And we have to look at a secular society that looks at Christians for, well, maybe for a long time, but at least the last three years, and the way we portray ourselves, especially social media, forget about it, but they have to be looking and say, if that is the power of God, then I don't want anything to do with it. And in God's grace, we can say, you know what? Maybe we haven't been kind to one another. Maybe you're right. But we can put down our pride and walk in humility and say, but from now on, because my Savior forgives me, I'm going to ask Him to transform my heart so that I will be humble. Love is not interested in how much we know. It, love is concerned with using what we know to the betterment of others. Paul explains this further in 1 Corinthians 13. Oops. Talking about spiritual gifts, Paul writes, If I speak in languages of men and angels, 
but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, man, if I have all faith so as I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, <laughs> making sacrifices more than anyone, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And Paul's point to, to, the, to Corinth is, look, you, you can be the most gifted person in the church. You can possess a greater faith than Abraham. You could be the greatest martyr in Christian history. But if you lack love, all of that amounts to nothing. Paul says that's not love. It's a selfishness, being concerned with yourself and only yourself, being concerned with being right. Pride, arrogance, that is not love. This is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It, 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 do, it is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So therefore, Paul says, look, every sacrifice you make, every gift you give, every spiritual gift you have, including knowledge, including knowledge, must be accompanied with love, by love. Yeah, we can, if we want to examine our own hearts and see where we are in our Christian maturity, then as the Word of God says, it is like a mirror. We can look into this passage and fill in the blank, take out love and put in Timothy. Timothy is patient. Well, not this week. Timothy is kind. C+. Plus. Love does not envy. Whew. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. Ask me to get yogurt for you at 3 a.m. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. <laughs> See again, basket to the yogurt at 3 a.m. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy. I fail. When I put myself up against what it says. To be Christ-like representatives. That's what love is. So that you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Verse 10. So that we may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. This is where it gets a bit tricky in our English translations. This is where I nerd out for a second. Because we have to dig a bit deeper for clarity with, with the word pure and blameless that's used here. I, I don't know what your English translations say. Mine say pure and blameless. Now this is the only time Paul uses this word in any of his letters. Pure. The only time Paul uses the word here for pure in any of his letters it is a common word used outside of the New Testament. It is a Greek word. 
But other than Paul, only Peter uses it. And just like Paul, Peter only uses it once. The meaning seems to imply, when we look at all the other uses outside of the New Testament and from what Peter uses it, it seems to imply having a sincerity, which can be pure, right? Having a sincerity. So so if we apply that to today's passage, we would say we should strive to love people with a love that is sincere, with a love that is genuine, which means what? No false motives. I'm not loving you to get something out of it. I'm not doing something for you so you will do something for me. It's just to be pure in heart, to be sincere. Our love should be sincere. Our love, as the English translation says, should be pure. Paul also says, be blameless. What's interesting about this is that that the the word Paul uses in verse 10 for blameless is not the same word he's going to use for blameless in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And by that I mean the Greek word. And the only other times the word in verse 10 shows up in the entire New Testament is by Luke in Acts 24 and by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. So for blameless, Luke says... So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And Paul, speaking again to the Corinthians, says, Give no offense or cause to stumble to Jews or to Greeks, to the church of God. Nailed it. Now, if we consider the meaning... uh, Sorry, I wasn't... When I hear a phone go off, I always act like it was a good point that I made. Sorry. No one laughed, and I was like, oh, speaking of arrogance, Pastor. Uh, oh. <laughs> if you live with me, you know I speak plenty silly. Okay. All right. If we consider the meaning of, 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 of those two verses clear conscience, no offense, not, not causing someone to stumble. And Paul's exhortation in this passage to love one another, be blameless, I think we can safely arrive at the conclusion of what Paul is saying here in verse 10 and what Luke and Paul said in those verses is that our love is to be beyond approach, right? That no one can critique us for our love or say that we don't love well because if they accuse us of it then we could at least say well this is what the word of god says right so though although your accusation is saying i'm unloving i was being faithful to my lord right now a love beyond reproach and a a, a sincerity of what Paul says in verse 10, it means that Christians are required to be active in their faith, right? I'll say it again just for emphasis. Christians are required to be active in their faith. This past week, I was, I was, I was helped tremendously in my studies by R.C. Sproul in, in his study Bible regarding uh, the concept of biblical love. He said, quote, Biblical love is more than a mere emotion. It is active. 
the calling of the Christian is not primarily to develop feelings of love for others. In many instances, that is outside of the Christian's control. However, we can control how we respond and act toward a person. End quote. In other words, what Sproul is saying is that the Bible does not emphasize on kindling warm, fuzzy feelings for one another. I, I, I will say that, that that does happen. We do grow in our affection for one another, but that's not the emphasis of love. The emphasis of love and what we see in Scripture then, as Sproul said, is how we act and respond toward our neighbor, toward one another. It's not legalism to say that Christians are required to be active in their faith. It's not legalism to say that we are supposed to obey the law of Christ. It's true, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. That's true. But we still have two commandments to obey. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. We read it this morning. Jacob read it this morning from Matthew 22. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. What's the other commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does Jesus say? And guess what? The whole Old Testament falls on these two, which means loving the Lord your God and loving uh, your neighbor as yourself. That's what the entire Old Testament was, was about. And praise God that we have a Savior who was became incarnate, assumed flesh in order to teach us what the love of God and loving your neighbor is truly about. And that ultimate love we see on the cross of Jesus Christ. God, Paul, Paul says in verse 6, God, I'm sorry, yes, chapter 1, verse 6, God is sovereign and our salvation, and He is sovereign and complete, and our sanctification. But we are still called, and He's going to say this in chapter 2, to work out our own salvation, to be faithful, to love the Lord our God and our neighbor. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and I don't remember who said it, but they said it well, but saving faith is never alone. Love is should follow true, regenerate Christians who have been born again by the grace of God. And we don't do it perfectly. I don't, maybe ever. It's, if you want to be in awe about God, <laughs> think about how you love others and then consider how God loves others. But God demonstrated his love as this while we were yet sinners. Christ Jesus died. Gave his life while we were yet sinners. Romans 5.8. He doesn't hold grudges. Right? He's humble. We've, we've been saved for a purpose. 
And Paul's going to say it in verse 11, but the purpose that we've been saved for is to bring glory to God, and we do that with our lives. We do that by love. We do it by loving Him, and we do it by loving others as Christ-like representatives. It's Christ-like representatives of God's love. That's what we are to be, ambassadors of God's love. How do you love someone like Christ? You lay your life down for Him. Not just in death, in all things. Consider them more highly than yourself. That's tough. Christianity's hard. It's a, this feels like a fire and brimstone sermon and I'm preaching on love. But if, if, we, if, we do, if we live to the glory of God, we don't do it perfectly, and, and when we sin, we confess our sins, and we trust that he is faithful to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. We don't do it perfectly, but we strive. We strive to, to, to spend time with God in prayer and say, God, how can I love this person? How can I love you? And we grow in that. That's what Paul is saying. Grow in your love for God. Grow in your love for one another. You learn it from the Word of God. And when you do it, when you do it in the, by the power of the Spirit, then you bring glory to God. Therefore, when you do that, on the day Christ does return, you will be pure and blameless. You will be sincere and not causing others to stumble. If, you, if you've been looking forward to the phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant, if you obey the two commands, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, that's a sincere faith and a sincere love and your conscience will be clean. I spent more time talking about living to the glory of God because that's the final point. Let's look at the verse, I'm sorry, the phrase, the day of Christ. This is the second time Paul has used the term day of Christ. You see it in verse 10, may be blameless in the day of Christ. In verse 6, he reminded them that he who began a good work would complete it until the day of Christ. Until the day of Christ Jesus. And now he, he uses it here to exhort them to this genuine love. I want to end, conclude, thinking about this day that Paul is referring to. Because specifically this day is the day that Jesus Christ returns to this earth to claim what is rightfully his. That day is when all of God's enemies will be defeated. Every single one of them. That, that day will be a day when sin is no more. <laughs> when death is swallowed in victory. One of the great, here's the reason to read the Old Testament, Isaiah 25. You know, when we read Revelation, we're looking forward to this wedding feast. One of my professors pointed this out. He says, he, actually his daughter pointed it out to him. He's like, you know, we're all waiting for this wedding feast with Christ when he returns. You know what God eats? When Christ returns, death. <laughs> Isaiah 25 says God swallows death. Death will no longer exist when Christ returns. His resurrection defeated death. It no longer has power over us. It's swallowed in victory and vanquished forever when Christ returns. Man, that is good news. 
the, the bodies that we have. Ever had a cavity? Just a root canal? The worst pain in Brittle? Surgeries? We get new bodies. When Christ returns, we get new glorified bodies. For us, the day of Christ is a great day of anticipation when we take the Lord's Supper, right? Talked about this last week. We remember that. We take it to remember his death until he returns. Day when God will make all things new. For others, it will be a great day of terror. Because on that day there will not be one enemy of Christ that will be able to hide or withstand his judgment. On that day, all accounts will be settled. Why does God allow these things to happen if He's a good God? Well, one day He's going to settle all of those accounts. But God is patient. God is love. God is patient. And His kindness is meant to lead people to repent. And unless you've repented from your sins and your sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are still an enemy of Jesus. In the Word of God, Paul, <laughs> Scripture, makes the same appeal that I would make this morning. That would you just consider the love of God that was demonstrated by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died in the place of sinners, who would die for your sin so that your sins would be forgiven. If you wonder if God loves you, you just have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. He loves you more and perfectly and completely than anyone ever could. Consider that His blood is sufficient for all sinners, even you. That forgiveness of sin, it's not earned. It is a gift freely given by God to sinners who don't deserve it. It's, it's, the, it's, re, it's really the cross of Christ and understanding what Jesus did for sinners that really shows the Christian and us as a church why there's no need for boasting or why we have nothing to boast about except Christ alone. There's, there's no room for pride in the church of Christ because none of us were worthy to be called children of God. None of us. Only one was worthy to be called a child of God and that was the Son of God. And he died in our place so that we might become heirs in eternity with him. So if we're going to boast, we're going to boast in the work and person of Jesus Christ. So loved one, if you haven't yet, repent from your sin and do what verse 11 says. Praise him for his grace and live your lives to the glory of God. Let us all live our lives to the glory of God. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, I know as I preach this, I have fallen short of not, not, not just loving you or the church, Lord, but my family, God, throughout the entire week, I fall short, and I'm certain there's more people here today who have fallen short from fulfilling this royal command of love, Lord. 
But God, I pray that, that that wouldn't be the emphasis of that they would fixate their minds on as they leave today, as they wake up on Monday morning, that they would, they would fix their eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ and, and, and realize, though I haven't loved perfectly, God loved me perfectly by sending his son to die in my place. And I don't have to earn your love. It's just given to me. And because you love me, I want to be faithful to love you and love others. And teach us how, God. Teach us how to do that. And not just this church, but the community outside of the church. And Lord, may the division that has ripped us apart for a while now, may it be healed by nothing else than the cross of Jesus Christ as we are kind to one another, forgiving others as you have forgiven us. God, create humility in your church today. Amen.